0: Hello everyone. Welcome to Sundays with Saima. This podcast is made for aspiring otolaryngologists to learn from trainees and attendings in the field. I'm your host, Saima Wase, fourth-year medical student at Northeast Ohio Medical University. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Eve Champaloo, PGY4 at University of Washington in Seattle, Washington. She completed her medical and her medical degree, and PhD in neuroscience at the University of Virginia. Dr. Champaloo, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm thrilled to have you here. Great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. Yeah, absolutely. So your path is a little bit unique in that you have a PhD. Um, what attracted you to the MD-PhD pathway? So I come
1: from a family of scientists. My dad was a physicist and my mom was a chemist and so i always knew that i wanted to go into science so uh, i always knew that the phd was going to be right for me Uh, but then as i progressed in my undergraduate career i realized that um, the most interesting questions that i saw people asking with their research were ones that were born out of the medical field And so I thought the best way to be able to ask questions that would be impactful would be to get an MD as well so that I could inform the questions that I would be asking with my research. So I decided I learned about the MD-PhD pathway and it seemed perfect for me because that way I could keep doing research, but then also, um, you know, inform my questions with what would be most useful to society And so then once I got to medical school and I started doing the M.D., I realized I actually really like medicine a lot, too. I really Mm -hmm. love the practice of medicine. So I'm very glad I went down this path, even though it was um, not exactly what I was expecting.
0: Yeah. Well, it seems like it's been rewarding so far being able to get that ground knowledge in the clinical level and then the operating room. So what drew you to otolaryngology as a subspecialty?
1: Yeah. So the one thing that I knew going into third year of medical school is that I didn't want to be a surgeon. I feel like everyone has that preconceived notion of you go into third year um, and you have to choose either surgery or not surgery. And so I was like, okay, well, definitely not surgery. And then we'll choose from there. Uh, But then I (laughs) got to my surgery rotation and I loved it. I thought it was so amazing that you could just spend, you know, a couple of hours of your time time and change somebody's life forever. And so in a really meaningful way, I found it to really counterbalance my research interests. So with the research, you tend to do um, you know, a few months or years or even decades of work. And from that, you can change the entirety of humanity if, if you get lucky mm-hmm. um, and if you're asking the right questions. Um, But on a day-to-day basis, research can be kind of a slog. You don't really get that instant gratification. And so with surgery, I found that instant gratification. I found that, you know, ability to take your talents and immediately apply them to solving a problem with your hands, which I find to be really, really great. Um, And so I I feel like with otolaryngology, especially those kind of quality of life surgeries are really important to me, Um, helping people hear, helping people... You know, look good and feel like themselves again. Helping people um, smell and be able to breathe. Helping people, you know, talk and survive through cancer. I think these are all such important things that we can do for people. Um, and I think that you know, that the face and the head and the neck the, the window to the entire body. You could cut off the whole rest of it and still have a living, breathing human being. And so, um, for me, I think otolaryngology is just the absolute pinnacle of
0: medicine. I think it's
1: the best specialty.
0: Well, that's certainly a that's certainly a good sell for all medical students listening, (laughs) Um, and that's really interesting that you're able to get that instant gratification while also planning like a lifetime career of scientific question questioning, Um, and that can lead to a lot of um, that can lead to decades of work, like you were mentioning. You recently had uh, some research in pregnancy during otolaryngology residency, and you presented that at the academy meeting. So what did you learn in that research, if you don't mind touching on that a little bit?
1: Yeah, so the research that I've been doing, um, so I'm at the University of Washington, we have a T32 training grant. And so during that year, um, we can focus on research in a really important way. And so uh, I worked on a couple of research projects during that time. Um, I worked on the project that you mentioned, the pregnancy during otolaryngology residency project. And then I also worked on a project uh, for which I got a core grant from the uh, ARS um, and that was looking at dopamine reward pathways and smell. So for the research in pregnancy during otolaryngology, um, that was a really interesting project that I did um, with a few of our collaborators, Stacy Gray and Reagan Bergmark. And then um, at my program, Dr. Tanya Meyer, uh, who's also our program director, Um, and then Anna Costa Starks, who has been helping us with the project as well. And so with our collaborators, we interviewed um, uh, over a dozen otolaryngologists, uh, most of whom are practicing now, who had had children during their otolaryngology residency. Um so these all all of these people identified as women so I'll just use the word woman going forward so these women trained and had a baby and went through the rigors of you know being pregnant during residency um trying to figure out how to feed their baby during residency with breastfeeding so all of these things were very very challenging um you know i think the biggest thing that struck me was that women have enormously difficult time breastfeeding and practicing medicine at the same time um, which is really too bad because it's it should be up to a woman and her family how they feed their child Mm -hmm. and um, you know with residency every minute is is busy every second is busy and so to say i need to get away and go pump breast milk so that i can feed my baby um it can be really hard for people especially if somebody isn't you know as assertive and doesn't feel like they can stand up for themselves and doesn't feel empowered to do that so it really falls to the programs to provide that safe space and to provide that space safe protected time And it's vitally important that we do that, because if we want to retain the best and the brightest, and if we want to retain especially women as leaders in otolaryngology, we have to make sure that they have a safe space in academia in order to have their families. And unfortunately, just biologically, there's only half of the population that can take care of this biological function. And so um, to exclude half of the population from, you know, the highest echelons of academic medicine is just it, it's just unfair and it's and it's not right.
0: Mm-hmm. And you're also
1: cheating, you know, programs and departments would, would be cheating themselves if they did that because um, you know, women provide not only an important um an important perspective to otolaryngology or there, you know, you're just cutting out half of the best otolaryngologists. So sure. um, for me, I, I think it's really, really important that that safe space be provided. Um, so that was one of the biggest things from our study is just, um, finding that breastfeeding was extremely difficult for people to mm-hmm. navigate. Um, right. and as physicians, we learned that you know, the the piffy saying of breast is best, you know, uh, breast milk is a biologically created perfect food for babies and um, to not give babies what they're supposed to have just because it's inconvenient for the people around somebody is, it's just not, it's not okay.
0: Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, sure. And you talked about a safe space and creating that for women in general. How do you think in general in the field, um, this need can be addressed better for women or women in training.
1: Yeah. So I think throughout medicine, this is starting to become an important topic. I think a lot, it's part of the ACGME requirements for, you know, all programs in every specialty that there be a safe place and time provided for people to breastfeed and to pump breast milk if needed. Um, and so, a lot of programs and hospitals and departments uh, throughout medicine are already providing this space. The problems that are unique to otolaryngology are we aren't only in the OR, we aren't only in clinic, we aren't only on the floor, we're doing all of those things every single day. And so we tend to be kind of nomads and a lot of programs, we actually go from hospital to hospital as well, um, sometimes at night on call. But for some programs, it's even during the day, you you switch between hospitals. So to say, like, oh, there's, you know, there's this perfectly good uh, pumping room available, um, it's on, you know, the sixth floor where the OR is on the second floor, and so you have to scrub out of your case, you have to go grab your pumping stuff, you have to get all the way up there, And then something that I think I didn't know before I started breastfeeding, um, and I think that a lot of people don't know is that pumping breast milk takes a long time. Mm. It's not like going to the bathroom. You don't just unzip your pants and go to the bathroom, zip them back up and go back to the OR. You mm-hmm. have to, you know, for some people, you have to change into a pumping bra, you have to attach the pump parts, you have to, for some people get into the right space and frame of mind because mm-hmm. you have to relax in order to get milk let down. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the whole process takes a little while. You can't just, you know, squeeze it out and go, you have to actually sit there and let it happen. And so mm-hmm. um So for a lot of people, it takes, you know, a good half hour to get this to happen. So to say, you know, especially if you're doing an OR day with a lot of short cases, okay, I'm just going to be gone for an hour while I go get my stuff and then pump and then put it back and then find a place to safely store the milk so that it's still cold and safe by the end of the day, Um, you know, and have to have to do that every two to three hours, depending on how far along you are in the Mm -hmm. postpartum period. Um, that's a lot to ask of a person who's already trying to juggle a million other things uh, by being in clinic taking consults and all that. So it's, it makes it very, very challenging. It makes an already very difficult and stressful time in somebody's life, even more challenging. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so I encountered some people who talked about having, feeling a lot of guilt and feeling a lot of worry about how they would be perceived. Um. And it's just, it's too bad that that stress has to be added onto the plates of these incredible people already.
0: Right. And like you mentioned, it would be unfair to eliminate half the population that may actually be providing so much to our field to advance it. So I think that we could all play an important part in creating that safe working environment. Um, What have you seen in your research that actually worked in creating that safe environment
1: so some programs did this incredibly well so i think um, a lot of times when you had uh, people in the upper echelons of programs like program directors assistant program directors chairs uh, people who had young children it made things a lot easier and i think um you know i was a little bit surprised to hear pleasantly surprised to hear um that oftentimes times those were men in the program so you know men who had seen their wives go through similar things and then wondered to themselves how can they possibly be doing this and otolaryngology residency at the same time which is a great question to be asking because it is quite challenging um and so um you know the, sometimes those were people's biggest supporters and so i would just encourage anyone um you know who has an otolaryngology resident who is dealing with you know having a newborn at home that incredible sleep deprivation that you can't even imagine. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also dealing with um, pumping breast milk, just to, you know, be understanding and realize that giving people the benefit of the doubt um, and realize that everyone's just doing their best. And that goes for every resident. I think residency um, can be really challenging when people, you know, are, are trying to push you to be your very best. Um, And when people don't realize that you know, if somebody falls short, they're still trying their best. Um, and they're doing their best. If you give people the benefit of the doubt though, that's the best way to get them to blossom and grow. So, um, so that was one thing that, uh, that came out of this is just, um, you know, helping to provide that safe space.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, this research project has been only one of two that you've worked on and you received the core grant for your, um, other research, which you mentioned about olfaction. Can you t- touch on that a little bit?
1: Sure. So, um, I'm working on a project that's looking at uh, dopamine reward pathways in olfaction. So, um, olfaction has been studied in the past as, as um, you know, to be paired with other things. So for example, You smell cookies and it brings back memories of grandma's house. And so you're happy because cookies smell good and they taste good and you love your grandma. So it's all very much intertwined. But Mm. what hasn't been studied in the past is can smells in and of themselves be inherently rewarding? So if so, can we then use them to motivate behavior? So. What we're doing is um, we set up a smell delivery chamber and we're using rats and we're studying that when we provide them with appetitive odors um, that we are able to elicit dopamine responses from their nucleus accumbens, which is one of the pleasure centers of the brain. And so um, in doing so, we've discovered that in fact, we can use it as smell in and of itself as a motivator. Um, and so now we're trying to use it to um, affect the use of drug-addicted rats. <laughs> and so uh, we're addicting rats to cocaine, um, and then by give, ha- having them self-administer cocaine through a jugular venous catheter, um, and then we're providing them with appetitive olfaction cues. And seeing if that decreases their drug use. And in preliminary experiments, it does seem to. So it's pretty exciting stuff where we're able to motivate behavior just using smell. And there's a million follow-up questions that we can answer um, with this new smell delivery system and with our ability to measure dopamine in the um, reward pathways of the brain. Um, So a lot of things that are in the news right now, like post-viral anosmia, things like that, there isn't really a good way of knowing whether or not a rat is smelling something. So you can give a rat a virus, but you don't know if they got anosmia from it. So there's no real animal model to study this system at the moment. And so now by seeing whether or not the dopamine goes away, we could see, you know, do rats lose their sense of smell from a viral infection like COVID-19 um, and things like that moving forward. So there's a million really cool projects that we can do moving forward. I'm really excited about it. Uh, so just trying to finish this up and do residency at the same time. One of the challenges of, of being a physician scientist is um, you, know, you always get pulled, pulled in a million different directions. The, Um, interest of wanting to do your research and then also needing to train to be a good surgeon. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Not an easy task, but congratulations on your work. It seems like you've created such an interesting experiment to look at this um, olfactory dysfunction in mice in many different situations, which is really interesting. Um, Thank you for sharing. And just as this is for medical students interested in otolaryngology, do you have any um, advice for us moving forward? Um, I think,
1: you know, fo- find a program that is going to match your interests. So for me, looking at the University of Washington, when I came and interviewed here, somebody said something very striking to me, and that was, um, you're having to turn down research projects because Because people come to you and say, oh, wouldn't it be so cool to study this? Wouldn't it be so cool to write a paper about this? And so you're having to say like, no, I already have too much on my plate. I can't do that anymore. And that was the kind of environment I wanted to be in. I wanted to be somewhere where people were so excited about research that you were having to bat them away and keep them away from you so that you could focus on what you had to do. And so um, having an environment that cultivates your needs. So for some people, that's going to be, you know, focusing solely on surgery and, you know, finding programs that don't have as much clinic time so they can really focus on surgery. That's going to be what their interest is. So every program is a little bit different. I think when you, it's a little bit hard now because of COVID-19 having to do everything online. Um, You don't get to get that in-person feel and gestalt for a program, but you know, there's, I think there's still ways of, you know, trying to talk to individual people um get a get a feel for the program and get a feel for the culture and you know what what's at the soul of a program what people really enjoy Mm. and then just from the standpoint of you know people who might be interested in starting families during residency um you know there are some best practices that we identified in our study uh that are things to look out for so um look for people who are proud of their residents that have families and have children people who you know parade them around and say like look we support families because if it's something they're trying to hide and something they're not encouraging then it's not going to be a good place for you if that's something that you're hoping to do during residency Um, look for a place that has role models in the resident cohort in the faculty even in the alumni people who you could go to to talk to about the specific challenges that you're going to find it any place. Mm -hmm. Um, So somebody who's already navigated that system, it can be really important to find somebody like that. Um, Ask about their policies. Do they have a policy to arrange leave? Um, How does call work when somebody is out And that goes for not only residents that have to take off time for pregnancy, childbirth, and the postpartum period, but also, you know, things happen. Mm -hmm. People have parents die during residency. People have grandparents die during residency. People have to take time off for reasons that, you know, can happen to anyone. It stinks, but it happens. Mm -hmm. And so finding a place that has that Um, that flexibility and already has those policies in place is really important because the last thing you want to deal with during one of those challenging times in your life is also having to worry about who's going to cover your call. Mm -hmm. It should just be something that already exists and something that people have already dealt with Mm
0: -hmm.
1: because residents are humans too. And so human things are going to happen to them. And we just have to expect and understand that. And if a program cannot support you through those basic transitions in life, then it's not going to be the place for you. Um, Just, you know, we have to look for places that can provide breaks from clinical and surgical time for breast milk pumping, if that's gonna be something that you're gonna wanna do and something that's gonna be important for you and your family. Um, And there's, you know, other best practices, but just look for programs that are gonna have what you need, Um, programs that are going to have resources for childcare, Um, or have the flexibility, you know, if it's, if you're going to have a child during residency, going to a place that only has one resident a year, it could be really challenging. You know, if you're, if your kid gets sick, then what's going to happen, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, for some people looking for a bigger program can be good. So different things to think about. And I just want to offer that I'm always happy to talk about this with anybody um, who's interested in going into otolaryngology. And it's something that I'm really, really passionate about. And so, if uh, anyone wants to reach out to me, I I would welcome it for sure.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Shampalu, And I think medical students everywhere really appreciate that advice. It's, it's hard to figure out exactly which program would fit your needs. And the framework that you provided is really helpful.
1: Oh, I just want to say, I think there's also this stigma of, you know, if you bring it up during an interview, and if you let on that you're a female, and that you have reproductive organs, and that you have a partner, and those organs might, you know, become used during your residency, that somehow you're going to be thought of as a lesser applicant. And if you ask these questions, or if you bring it up, that, you know, you're just not going to match because nobody wants somebody who's going to be out for having a child. But I would just encourage people to to realize that a lot of Attendings wish that they had started earlier and wish that they had had their children earlier in life. And so I think um, there's starting to be a shift, not only in otolaryngology, but in medicine in general, as people enter the field later in their life. Um, You know, people are taking time off between undergrad and and medical school, and, and, you know, people are taking time off during medical school for research. So people are starting to come into residency later, and just biologically, you can't delay having children forever. So I think a lot of people come to the end of their medical training and realize that, you know, they're having trouble with infertility, they're having trouble with having children and they have regrets that they didn't start earlier. So I think um, as as family becomes more important to the people in medicine, I think it's also becoming much more acceptable to say, you know, hey, what? Um, how many of your residents have had children, and what did you do to support them? I think is a very reasonable question to ask, and I don't think any, anybody would think anything any less of you for doing it. Um, and if you find a program where they would think less of you for asking that question, and that's something that you're going to be doing during residency, you're going to be putting yourself in a really bad spot if you're trying to infiltrate the system. So just find somewhere where you're welcome, and it's it's incumbent on programs to make that welcoming space.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing that, that perspective that a lot of us lack um, going into application season. We really appreciate it. Uh, any final thoughts? No, I think that's it. Thank you so much for having me and
1: good luck to you and to everyone else who's applying to otolaryngology this year during, during these strange times as we transition to online interviews. I know it's um, it's a challenging time to be an applicant, so good luck to everyone and Uh, wishing you the best. And I hope you find the perfect program for you.
0: Thank you. Thank you to the listeners for making it to the end of this episode of Sundays with Saima. Check us out next Sunday on the next episode.